This is Burn This Book, a banned books book club where we, Nicole and Eden. <laughs> Sorry. What is going on? <laughs> I thought I heard you breathe out. <laughs> I heard you breathe out and I thought you were laughing. Okay, I'm going to read it if okay. you can't get it this time. Okay. okay. This is Burn This Book, a banned books book club where we, Nicole and Eden, read a banned or challenged book twice a month and discuss its meaning, impact, and censorship to make it more accessible for all readers. This week's book is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which was published in 1985 for adults. This book has been challenged for three decades. Eden cannot stop laughing, so we apologize for her silence, which will be inevitable for a while until she can control herself, because <laughs> apparently she thinks The Handmaid's Tale is funny. <laughs> Joining us today is <laughs> Stephanie Toman, calling in from Pittsburgh. Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the book, and why you agreed to come on our little podcast? Uh, gladly. Um, so like you said, I'm calling in from Pittsburgh, but, uh, I'm not from here. Um, I grew up, uh, in like a pretty liberal area out in Washington state. I went to college in like a conservative state. Um, and I've spent my adulthood between Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, which are kind of, you know, these swing states. Um, and so I've lived in like a lot of different environments and prevailing belief systems. This is relevant. Um, not just like a biography. Uh, I'm a mother. Uh, I actually read The Handmaid's Tale for the first time after my daughter was born, um, which was like a very intense experience. Would not recommend uh, to do that on maternity leave. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she's now in kindergarten. It actually, um, I just attended my first school board meeting this last Ooh. week, uh, in large part because on the agenda for the school board meeting was the approval of a book. Um, at the middle school level. So my district last year, actually a group of parents mounted to try to ban um, The Hate You Give was a book that they were going to teach in high school and a bunch of parents tried to stop that from happening. Um, And so I was just like really curious for what would happen at the school board meeting. Um, This book is like a graphic novel about um, life as a refugee. And so I'm like, this is a beautiful book. Kids should read it. Um, What is going to (laughs) happen? Uh, so I like feel really strongly about, um, you know, kids having access to books, uh, as I was kind of reflecting and preparing some of like the most impactful books I've read, like growing up in school have been banned or challenged. Um, the Goosebumps books, which like were like the, <laughs> some of the most challenged books, I think it was like number fifth. it was like number 15 in the nineties, yeah. um, for most challenged. Like that made me fall in love with reading in fourth grade. What? Um, in high school, I took this, uh like analytical and critical reading class. And when I was looking back at the banned books, a lot of the books I read in that class have actually been banned or mm-hmm. challenged um, in other states. And so I have really like personally benefited from discussions and, and just like enjoying books. Like, like Shel Silverstein has been banned um, and his poetry also made me love reading. So I just, I don't know. I, this is like a lot about me and, oh, and my history with books, more. but um, more Stephanie. that's, so much of like why I love reading are these, you know, tough um, stories that help, you know, like you explore realities other than your own. Um, and so I'm excited today to talk about The Handmaid's Tale, uh, excited always to talk about any book that people don't think kids should be reading. Um, and like, there are like, right, there are like legit books out there that maybe shouldn't be in schools, which is maybe a hot take. Um, I know when I was a teacher during silent reading, 
kids were reading like Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh. I'm like, maybe not in my class. Um, but uh, like, I'm like, but I guess if they would have shown me like the literary merits of that book, I probably could have been swayed. Um, but otherwise, uh, I think there's just like so many helpful lessons to be drawn um, from some of these books um, that are often controversial. Mm-hmm. So thank you for letting me join you today. Um, I hope to be able to like keep up with your insight um, yeah. and measure up to your previous guests. <laughs> yeah. The competition is on. Yeah. And then we will have a winner in the end of the season of which guest <laughs> was the, the best. best. Yeah, obviously. Um, you brought up a really good point that I think draws into The Handmaid's Tale before we get into the book summary is like, um, because I mean, I think it's very clear that Eden and I are against banning books. But also we have kind of had hot takes where like we don't really like there have been certain books that we've read that mm-hmm. we've been like, I don't know if I'd actually want that book in my house. Yeah. Personally, like I don't think I'd really want my kid like digging into that book. And I think that that is completely reasonable. Mm-hmm. I think that like parents get to decide what comes in and out of their home for sure. Um, public schools, I think, are a little bit different. But there is a line that is awkward. And when you bring up Fifty Shades of Grey in the classroom... I don't know, <laughs> you know, like our Harlequin romances, should they also be, you know, where there is graphic sex being described? Should they be in school libraries? I don't think so. <laughs> and so I think, you know, like there has to be some sort of line that is about age appropriate, but it's interesting to see the themes that people ban usually have to do with racism Mm-hmm. and witchcraft right um or right lgbtq uh, characters that, lgbtq yeah. yeah yeah whereas like we don't hear yeah. a lot of chit chat about graphic sex and things that are like too mature for that body's development like we know the impact of pornography on children on bodies that have not actually gone through their like um what's the word the, through puberty or like just even like through full development like it triggers things and so it's complicated so even when we talk about the handmaid's tale because there is a little bit of graphic stuff in there um i think that it is important to talk about what ages like should this be read by freshmen in high school i don't know and so i think I do think that that's an appropriate conversation to have and i think that's perfectly okay to have these conversations as long as you're not going out right and being like absolutely no one should read this we need to burn it take it out of the school but i do think like because i don't know if i would have understood the themes to this extent until i was an adult or at least until i had a teacher who was guiding me through it yeah that's the that's the point i want to touch on is the teacher guiding so oftentimes like when, when it comes to books that are being banned or challenged it's it'd be interesting to see how many are just free floating in a school library versus part of an English curriculum. Um, If it's part of an English curriculum, I think there is less need to ban or challenge a book because you do have an adult guiding you through it. Um, Even if that adult is super liberal, super (laughs) (laughs) anti-book. Like, uh, yeah, it's hard to create a revolution around, um, around books like The Awakening by Kate Chopin and stuff like that. Like, which has been challenged. Which has been challenged. But, like, those are usually taught by very liberal teachers. Like, most... If you're a liberal teacher, you're going to probably bring in some sort of, like, woman's yeah. lib kind of stuff. But I don't remember anyone in my class, like, burning their bra because of Well, that. and, like, The Handmaid's Tale is often on AP exams. 
Like, so it's not just a liberal agenda kind of book. It's like, actually, this has been established as, you know, literature that teaches lessons that is like high, you know, high enough level for deep discussion, not just, you know, hey, what's this about? Let me casual read this um, on the back of the bus. (laughs) Like, yeah. Bringing it back to the Handmaid's Tale. Exactly. And I think that's also... But thank you. But I think that's also important to think about is AP exams as well. Oh, well. Like, if your school's not going to (laughs) teach... Yeah, if your school's not going to teach half the stuff that's going to be on an AP exam because you think it's going to be too harmful for your child, all you're doing is hurting that kid's chance of succeeding and going to college. Like, sorry, that's the system we live in. Mm -hmm. So, like, that is a thing that I don't think that a lot of people who are banding together to ban... Ooh. <laughs> um, I don't think that they're really thinking about that. Well, we could turn this into like a, well, if you want to ban books, you should ban AP exams, which I would have appreciated as a young child, <laughs> as a high schooler. Burn that exam. I loved my AP exams. You loved the exams? I loved it. Well, just the English ones, because that was like the only time I thrived. Like AP Econ was terrible. I wrote poems the, throughout the whole thing. It was so bad. I took multiple AP classes. I never took an AP exam. Oh. So there's a hot take for that you. That is a hot take. I love that's kind of working within the system and outside the system. Yeah. Yeah. Looks great on my transcript, but like, I don't know, by the time I was in AP classes, I knew I was going to go to BYU and they don't care about APs. Um, like, none of the credits really transfer. So I was like, why would I waste my time taking this test? Wow, I waste And so then I got to watch just movies, right, in the class after the AP exam because teachers aren't teaching anymore after that. Wow, I wasted ah, time and great. money. Great. Would recommend. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Okay, okay. Okay, I guess we can get back to... Sorry, that was... But you brought up a good point because I don't know what I would do if I was a teacher and a kid was reading Fifty Shades of Grey in my classroom. Yeah. I guess you're just like, okay. <laughs> At least you're reading. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So let's move on to the summary. So we'll do a quick, uh, just a quick recap. Who wants to take that on? I can, I can go. Okay. okay. 70. Yes, please. <laughs> I mean, if we're, if we're talking super quick, like tagline summary, right? The Handmaid's Tale is, is a dystopian story of like a hyper Christian society where fertile women um, are kind of like, right, like loaned out to breed children mm-hmm. for, like, elite families, right? Like, that's, like, the handmaids, right? It's rooted in, you know, the Bible of Rachel and here, take my handmaid um, because birth rates have declined so drastically in this society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it centers around, like, this one handmaid story um, and you get, right, bits and pieces throughout of kind of how this society came to be, how it's, you know, uh, existing and the different facets of that society. An important thing also to note is that the society, the trigger for all of this stuff was a big war that we don't really understand as readers. There's like a a coup that was formed on the government and then everything kind of fell apart. And that's when they realized like birth, decline in birth really matters. And we just like do not understand what's happening outside of this community. We don't even know how big the community is. Mm -mm. The dystopian world that she created is very, it's set in America for sure. But like the community, we don't know if it's like a part of, like I kept going back to not, what's the Mockingjay? Oh, shoot. 
more time. Oh, Hunger Games? Hunger Games, yeah. They, um, I kept thinking about that. Is like, are there going to be like districts like in that? You know how that was set in that? And I don't have any understanding. So all I know is that this world is, um, is future tense from where we are, basically. A war has happened and is still happening. And, um, and like you said, it's a hyper-Christian society that justifies going back to these like old biblical ideals about bringing in other partners, um, as bodies to basically like become walking wombs so that we can keep building our population. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of infertility in this community apparently as well. Um, and yeah, I think Margaret makes a point of it being an environmental cause uh, for the infertility. So it is an mm-hmm. environmentalist book as well from that perspective. Um, and going off of what Nicole said, there is a point where there are tourists who are yeah who have come in and to check out the handmaids. And the the way she describes the tourists, it just sounds like modern day people. Mm-hmm. That so, was so weird. Yeah. Part of me is like, oh, this is only taking place in Massachusetts. Other part of me is like, wait, is it bigger than Massachusetts? You know, it, it was just hard to tell the extent, the the reach of this new government within America. It was very, yeah. And the tourists came from, like, at one point in the book. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Just to add on that. And I think that so points sorry. to, that points to, well, this particular handmaids of, of Fred. Because the handmaids are named after their current commander. So her current commander's name is Fred. <laughs> Dumb name for such a person in power. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she, because the first thing this government did was remove tons of women's rights. And one of them is right to access to information. And so I think we have a little glimpse into what that is like by not knowing how far reaching this government is because of like how. Interesting. How very little Afred knows Afred. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, we know very little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's a really... And Margaret Atwood made a point to say, um, in the documentary that's on HBO Max about Margaret Atwood, um, that <laughs> none of the events in the book were made up. She took them from different political things that were happening throughout the world and um do you have that in your notes as well stephanie oh i have i have a quote from margaret atwood yes uh, oh do you want to do you want to throw that in there yeah she said i made a rule um i would not include anything that human beings had not already done in some other place or time Hmm. yeah and so like so some examples of that is um during that when she wrote the when she was writing the book romania had a new uh leader who had a rule that was forcing women to give birth. And so they had, all women had to give, uh, take birth, uh, take pregnancy tests every single month. And they had to give a reason of why they were not pregnant. (gasps) And it was like this whole thing. And it became to the point where like these women were just walking wombs in Romania for that time. So that wasn't made up at all. The idea of like um, all women's credit cards, because we're no longer working with like physical cash, um, our money just being cut off at the source because Margaret was like the only way to really p- 
push suppressed woman is to take them out of the workforce and bring them back into the home. And the only way you can do that is cut them off from all their earnings, all their independence. And so you would just do that with um, credit cards. And so she explained like that in different countries at different points, all of these things were happening. Um, and she also lived in um, East Germany for a while. To, not, I mean, in West Germany for a while, excuse me. And watched East Germany and the contrast between those two places before the Berlin Wall fell. So a lot of the things in this book come from watching all of these really intense situations happening under different communist um, leadership. And so I think like, so when we read this book, that blew my mind because it's not made up. She wasn't just like, oh, this is going to be a crazy world. This is actually happening. These are realities that can happen. And I think we, um, the book starts off with this like crazy coup of the of Congress where everyone just kills everyone in Congress. We don't know who killed the people in Congress in the book, but we know that they've all been murdered and there's a new totalitarian regime and no one really understands it, but they're there to protect and bring them back to like American values. And it was interesting reading this post January 6th because like we saw an effort Mm -hmm. to do that. And we still don't quite know exactly who was the, the perfect puppet master of that experience. But, um, like, it's just, it's creepy how, like, yeah, the Margaret Atwood stuff is not unrealistic. No, I want to, I want to carry that thought forward. Um, and it's interesting that, right, like, you named kind of communist countries or other places around the world, but, right, there's, like, a deep history of reproductive suppression in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, especially as, like, the Roe v. Wade stuff has been coming out, Anti-Racism Daily, which is, like, a, a publication, they posted some, I thought, like a really insightful thought piece around like the use of Handmaid's Tale imagery has been popping up a lot. And they like kind of reminded us of that, like using this fictional um, dystopian story that like centers white women, um, like cisgender, heterosexual white women is like ignoring the very real reality um, and experiences and history of, right, like marginalized communities yes. mm-hmm. um, in this country and they cite some examples of right like forced sterilization yes. has like a long-standing history in the united states like specifically for indigenous women um in like mental health institutions and puerto rican and i they also talk about like uh yeah puerto ricans they said almost like it's like a third or something of puerto rican women and it's like right it's almost always against their will they don't necessarily understand what's happening right recently this was happening at the border for migrant women mm-hmm. and like this is like right not even to mention right the rape of enslaved women uh right to produce more enslaved children right um yeah. and so it's not only like oh here's examples of this happening in other countries but actually here's our own country's history of this reproductive <laughs> suppression and continuing into today around I don't think we have to have an abortion debate on this podcast I'd prefer not to but uh right this idea of like not having reproductive control of your body absolutely and like we in the liner notes of this one I'll I'll have Eden I'm gonna make you oh you're gonna make me (laughs) yeah so listen up but I'm gonna I think we should add um links to different resources Okay. To better understand sterilization and forced birthing. There was a conversation about just like the idea that 
we're yeah we're centering this white woman when this is just like the tv show specifically is just the story of harriet tubman and margaret atwood made it very clear that the tv show and her book are not the same thing that the tv show is being created by these brilliant creators and she's very proud of it but she was like it's not my book mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's something that i i thought was a really helpful distinction was like the way she ends the book is on a cliffhanger. I think it's very much more like the first season of the TV show. There's no real like evidence of a major rescue plan. There's not a lot of like, we don't know what happens to this society and this community. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And well, that's why I read the book is I watched the show and went, ah, cliffhanger first season. Let me read this book and find out what happens next. And it's and just the first season. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, well, that was You're like wasted that maternity leave. <laughs> Yeah, great. I haven't watched the TV show. Uh, Reading it this time around for me reminded me a lot about the the current Iranian revolution. Um, So for those of you who don't know, let me pull up my notes. And I know we're recording this at the end of October. At the end of October, yep. So this will be released much later on. So we don't know the outcome of the revolution. Yeah, we don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Like, like, yeah. What if it's like vastly different than re- what I'm about to read right now? Then that's okay. This is a cool time. That'll be so embarrassing for you. That'd be, yeah. <laughs> or it's super embarrassing. <laughs> it's a time capsule, Stephanie. Uh, so that's a good, good note, Nicole. <laughs> 22-year-old Masa Amini was in her brother's car during a visit to see some family members in the capital, and she was arrested by morality police, who then beat her in their van and then she died a few days after and the official document uh declaring her death said it was a heart attack but doctors have since come back and said actually that was a lie it was uh from blows to the head and from uh blood loss and and stuff like that and so since then um women all over iran have been cutting off their hair uh, in protest, uh, some of them more anonymously than others, so they'll have their faces facing away from cameras. Um, but they're all doing it in the name of uh, Masa Amini and for the um, the free the bringing to light the oppression that women have been facing under the Islamic uh, Islamic rule, essentially. I kind of want to segue, use this also as a segue into how Handmaid's Tale is kind of Christian. Um, And I say kind of because there are many moments where they're quote unquote quoting scripture. That was a weird phrase. They're quote unquote quoting (laughs) scripture and you're reading it and growing up Christian. I'm like, that sounds not right. That sounds like something actually from the Marxist, (laughs) the, the handbook, uh, Karl Marx's books. Um, specifically for each according to her ability to each according to his needs isn't that like a isn't that a marxist phrase to each according to her i don't know but you're probably right i can look it up though we can verify things should we verify we can verify we'll verify that yeah but obviously the the uh pronouns in there are not Those yeah. are certainly not scripture. Those are certainly not scripture. Don't need, don't need to fact check that. <laughs> yeah. I think that what is so, what was very disturbing about that book is we're seeing, like in America specifically, 
And I think we've seen it since Reagan, probably since way before, but I wasn't alive. I wasn't even alive during Reagan. <laughs> but it's close to, to my lived experience, I guess. Yeah. I'm living the, the outcomes. Um, it's trickled down, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I will. You will. Um, but how religion has been weaponized and it's that's what's so stressful is like these stories which are very complex i mean you're reading we're reading like the hebrew bible and um and you're reading parts that are like should be read in context from a from a perspective that i don't have as a white american christian and like we're reading things out of context and then applying them to things and i think um like, the sadness I feel when I hear our politicians weaponizing religion against my own body and against my opportunities to to live a full life that I know that divinely I is my inheritance to be able to choose to do that. Um, it's, like, it's incredibly disturbing to just see that manipulated and twisted. And I'm sure, like, our Muslim friends and family also feels that way when they think about Iran and how like their belief system is so empowering when you believe in a God that makes you know that the world is so much bigger and you are so much more capable with that God to, to know that they're using that belief system to make sure that your world is very, very small Yeah, is very disturbing. And this book was that over and over again, manipulating and twisting pieces of, the Bible for the needs of this very specific small community um, that also it's just, yeah. And, and you see everyone is oppressed in it. Like no one is not like even the men are oppressed in this system. Mm-hmm. It's not just the handmaid. Like they're clearly the ones that are just being like assaulted day in and day out. But every single person, their world is so tiny because of how this theology has become part of their entire identities and their entire lives Mm -hmm. and and i brought up that like handmaid's tale is kind of christian because of exactly that point and how the islamic state is kind of islamic yeah (laughs) i see what you're saying yeah kind of it's christian-ish (laughs) christian-ish because like margaret adwood made a point of this in an interview where she talked about how the book is not a question of religion making people behave badly. It's a question of human beings getting power and then wanting more of it. And I fact-checked myself, and that quote that I said earlier is from Marx. Um, so it's not even a <laughs> biblical thing, because she says it's from the Bible, or so they say. That's that's how she kind of phrases it. Continuing on with that interview from Margaret Atwood, she talked about how people wanting power are wanting to eliminate competition. Mm. Because they're not interested in belief or in faith. They're interested in compliance and then using religion as a way to get that compliance. Because then anyone who doesn't agree with you is a heretic. And like that makes me think of, so there are billboards in Utah that says, make Utah conservative again. And part of me... <laughs> it's so what, what is it right now? now? You'd be so surprised. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like freaking out right now. It's crazy. <laughs> and it makes me... And like... Listening to people on either side bash the other side as as viciously as they do, it makes me, like, there's a balance to everything. And if we remove one side of the scales, 
then we are in we're at risk of becoming a totalitarian an author- mm-hmm. authoritarian state and so we do need so like I sometimes think about like oh maybe I should buy some billboard space out of my own things <laughs> and just like hey without us you'd be a fascist <laughs> state you know and then you can list the 20 democrats so as, you're welcome this is what I mean by us exactly <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> By the way, we have a podcast. <laughs> and like we do need that balance in order to not have corruption. Yeah. Cuz in order like that that is what the horror of a one party state or a one religion state or a one something state is. Um is that they have all the say in everything mm-hmm. and they get to get rid of whoever disagrees. Mm. And they get to manipulate it. It's yeah, like and they get I to said, manipulate yeah. it. And they get to put morality police in and they yeah. get to um they get to go unchecked, which hopefully the Gen Z Iranians are able to Yeah, just sending a lot of whatever I can from here to to help them. Yeah. But let's talk about uh what other themes in this book have we found that are important that would benefit a, a classroom or a family to talk about in their home. Um, okay. I've, I've got one. Uh, before, before I add that, I want to mm-hmm. say real quick, Eden, so much of what you were saying made me think of this book is so often compared to like 1984, right? It's like, oh, it's, it's the female 1984, which mm-hmm. is, I think, a little insulting um, as a moniker, but right, this idea of, you know, <laughs> taking control and having all that power, those, those notes... Mm-hmm. Uh, pop for me. Wait, real what? quick. I'm gonna pause you real quick. Margaret Atwood actually wrote this as a female perspective. Oh, I think I think those female perspective. So it's, okay. it's great. I think it's saying, fun. "Oh, it's it's a women's yeah. 1984" feels like it's you know. Oh yeah, no, that's yeah. messy. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's not the point. So one of the themes that popped for me in this second time reading it uh, in preparation for this conversation is there was a part in there where it talked about like like fertile women as natural resources. Like you guys are natural resources and like, you know, children are necessary for the survival of society. And so like this handmade model um, is like for the common good, right? Like that's part of like how they justify it. It's like this Mm -hmm. twisted application of uh, kind of utilitarianism. Uh, And there's a quote in there that even says like, well, Mm -hmm. better never means better for everyone. It always means worse for some. Uh, which I think has those like utilitarian mm. notes of like, well, greatest good for the most amount of people. And so a theme, this like natural resource thing popped for me. And like, obviously this is an extreme example of finding, you know, moral justification for using someone or something to your advantage. Uh, but it has like clear application to environmental, environmental devastation for me. And Eden, I know at the top you mentioned, right? Like this is an environmentalist book, right? Cause it talks about, like, that's what led to, infertility mm-hmm. so i i doubt this was unintentional but i think especially mm-hmm. as it relates to like the actions of wealthier com- uh, countries taking actions that have like the most devastating impacts on developing nations around the world right like all of these extreme climate disasters we're seeing are a clear result of developed nations like using and abusing what they see as like natural resources that they have free claim to so know, that was like a theme that popped for me uh, that i found interesting yeah. And could be a, an interesting so discussion interesting. or conversation, right, in a classroom setting. Just like, yeah, just discussing how the impact of, like, of environmental decisions can truly affect a person, like, to the point of what a woman wears eventually in her life. Mm-hmm. There's these outfits in the book, too, 
that where the handmaids all wear red and it's very like Puritan society clothing kind of. Um, it's almost very similar to the clothes of the uh, of like during the time of the Salem witch trials, which is not a coincidence. And um, they're all in red and they wear these like bonnets that cover their faces. And then um, the wives wear blue. Who's wearing blue? No, the the nurses. The, the ants. What are they called? I thought the, the ants are wearing aunts. gray. The yeah, the ants are wearing it's gray. The wives. wearing blue. I think it's the wives. The yeah. wives are wearing blue. All the wives of these like these um, prestigious families who get to have a handmaid, <laughs> um, and they're prestigious in the fact that the husbands did something for this revolution, or they had some sort of say, or some they have some amount of power, but we do not know anything beyond that really mm-hmm. and then um so you have all these different outfits for these women the men don't have to do that and there's this part in the book where the the man that she is working for he like is trying to make it easier for her we don't really understand his intentions he probably has some weird guilt also i'm sure he's got some carnal stuff but he keeps trying to get alone with her outside of their like regular ceremony uh, ceremony to um impregnate her and he, like, takes her to this bar and he, like, dresses her up. And it's, like, this illegal bar. He dresses her up and that's where, like, he can finally be free and happy and he's, like, living his life, you know, like, little Las Vegas 2.0. You see that – you see his oppression there, too. But you see how this entire structure – like, the ways of the old world haven't changed um, internally. Like, secretly, they're still there. But the way that we interact on the day-to-day um, – in public has completely transformed and when we do talk about the environment we often forget about the fact that it will change our day-to-day as we're dealing with these like massive problems and like more hurricanes are happening in louisiana than have ever happened before at a crazy scale and that's just in america we also see the heat like in we're in utah and it's still not winter and it's the end of october that's terrifying like, that's going to change. That is changing our day to day. And we're going to start seeing that affecting different parts as we start becoming more and more desperate, trying to save what we have of our natural environments. And we don't I don't even think we can understand the scale of what that's going to look like. Yeah, I don't think we can. Like, even just in Utah alone, we're in the middle of a drought. People are still watering their green, 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 green lawn. Great for a desert. Makes and a lot of sense. the... Great for a desert. <laughs> it makes sense. It Great feels for good. A desert. The Great Salt Lake is drying up. The Great Salt Lake is drying up, and there are like implications of that. Of, yeah. like, Environmental toxic... nuclear bomb. I think that's what the news was calling it. Yeah. yeah. Arsenic is in the lake as a natural phenomenon. You know, it's natural for a salt water lake. And as it evaporates at this level that it is, uh-huh. it will poison and kill everybody. So, like, there are things that we can, and we don't even know what that's doing with infertility and the fact that so many developments are being built on radon-packed mm-hmm. ground that is not safe to be living on. And you have this, like, family uh, family-focused community here in Utah. And so, and you do see all this infertility stuff. And then you see these abortion trigger laws happening and people don't even understand the implications of IVF for people mm-hmm. who are already struggling with infertility and feel like it is their divine calling to have more children. Mm-hmm. So you have this like interesting tug and pull happening in Utah already yep. that like that has to do with the environment as well that we cannot even like it is so interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm so and and then we bring up clothing and more people are changing how they dress in the summertime because it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, which it also impacts 
religious clothing in Utah because we're seeing different trends. And so there's like, it's just, there's so much happening and it's very interesting to look at from the scope of Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was going to go there. (laughs) One more thing I have to say as well is something I liked about Margaret Atwood's writing is that um, Offred was not a perfect person. Like we see her making tons of mistakes. We see her being messy, like her marriage that she was in before this whole thing happened. Uh, she was the product of an affair. Like, she had an affair with a married man. Mm-hmm. Um, like, she's not this, like, holier-than-thou being. She's not our Joan of Arc that we see being sacrificed. And then when the end, it kind of ends with her maybe being rescued, maybe not. We don't know what that outcome is, but we know that she kept a diary of some sort or re- recordings of some sort, and that's how we have this document. It's like an anthropological mm-hmm. discovery by future, future, future societies. But we, yeah, no one in this book is absolutely perfect. And that makes it very relatable. Margaret Atwood was just so good at, like, at making sure that no one was a hero, but, like, we're all, that the morals still do win somehow. Like, she knows that she can't, she shouldn't be in this situation. Like, she doesn't allow herself to go crazy. Mm -hmm. Whereas other handmaids do kind of lean into it in an effort of survival and offer it like does it sometimes and then sometimes doesn't like you see her waffling trying to figure out mm-hmm. what's right and what's not and i think like what a great conversation to talk about with people with students yeah it's really interesting she she's kind of a passive character throughout yeah. like you hear about other handmaids acting out and then being sent to detention camps and stuff like that the colonies but she kind of just... The colonies. Thank colonies. you. Even her own mother was sent to a colony. Mm-hmm. To the colonies. Because <laughs> her mother was like a renowned feminist mm-hmm. in the societies before, yeah. But yeah, I wonder if there's like commentary on Offred, that passivity turning into complicity. Because there's a point where she refuses to call the ceremony rape because nothing is going on here that I haven't signed up for. And I wonder if there... There's well, yeah, that's another thing we could discuss in an English classroom of just like what what does activism look like in a society where all of your rights have been taken away? What does morality look like? What is like, morality? What look are like? you allowed to do? Because she technically did not sign up for this. There's a part yeah. in the book where she is being dragged and taken while she and her husband and child are trying to run away. Mm-hmm. And her child is even ta- her daughter is taken from her. Her husband, she has no idea what happened to him. And she is being dragged back into this space because of her fertility. Like, so when she says she signed up for it, that there's some like. There's some denial going on. There's some denial. And I think a lot of people who have been assaulted or have gone through traumatic situations, we don't understand the grand scheme, like the, the scope of our victimization until later on, just because I sometimes I don't think our bodies and brains can cope with that level. Mm -hmm of violence upon ourselves and so i think like that's a coping mechanism to sit to think that you still have free will in this situation so where is her morality when she has absolutely no choice Mm -hmm. and i guess we could argue that with iran like what is their where how are they able to make moral choices when they don't have the freedom to and is breaking the law ultimately a higher moral choice like is that where they're like i don't know it's What's more moral, trying to survive or trying to affect change? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Reminds me of Huck Finn. Yeah, very Huck Finn. Very Huck Finn. 
rather go to hell than. I think we should keep a slavery. keep a tally of how many times you bring up Huck Finn in your podcast episodes. Mm. We love Huck Finn; it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should read it. I don't know, somebody. <laughs> Maybe you'd like it too. I have a copy. Maybe you shouldn't assume I have it. <laughs> I, have I a gave a whole right monologue about how much I love banned books. <laughs> I read Huck Finn every night to my kids. Yeah. <laughs> we, we bleep like the Edward, so it. therefore the book is like twelve Ooh, pages. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna say I do that. You don't censor, <laughs> Stephanie. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna go on record saying I make sure I say the Edward to my kids. No, you don't say it to your kids. Oh, good. I, was saying, I thought you said, I always no. say it. No. No. No, you bleep it. Not today. Therefore, the book is very short. Therefore. <laughs> yeah, it's really short. Yeah. Very fair. Very reasonable. So help me if you don't edit that part out, Nicole. I will see what I feel <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> um, do you have other thoughts about themes? Because I have a question for both of you. Mm-hmm. As mothers, and you read this while you're on maternity leave, <laughs> and Eden, I think Just you- Just a light maternity read. For sure. And you reading. started it or something? What What was- Did you I'm ever start it right after, while you were pregnant with Mabel, or there was- Or what was the- Was there a different book that you started that while you were pregnant that had to do with abortions? I'm trying to remember- I don't remember either, but um, Eden, you did the school for good mothers, right? After oh, that was Mabel's the one born. I stopped reading. Yes, uh, okay. I had to stop reading that one too. Could yeah. totally handle the Handmaid's Tale. Couldn't do school for good mothers. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. So that's saying something. Yeah. We'll get into that. So what did what was the impact <laughs> on you with this? Because like, this was because um you said Abby is in kindergarten now, so this was five years ago. Yeah, five ish years ago. And um, so before Roe v. Wade, before doctors were being criminalized for practicing abortion, which also happens in the book, um, before January 6th, before all that stuff. So when we peel away all the political alignment, what can you, yeah, just share your feelings. Of- I mean, I wouldn't say before all that stuff because it's 20, uh, let's see, I was, I was pregnant in 26. okay yeah like election day uh so i'm reading i'm reading this in right like a trump trump's america right like so i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's like after all that stuff because i think that um felt really relevant even when it talked about like some of you know oh they were protesting and then they were gunning people down that were trying to protest or different things um in the book uh eden do you want to do you want to take this one first though yeah i don't know that i have i'm about to look up when I first read this, I only ask because you said that you read it while. Because I, you only asked because I brought it yeah. up. Yeah, and so so you should have a better. You should have had a better answer. Well, because I can't imagine because <laughs> as a woman who I my uterus is looking good, it's in great shape, but fresh. But my body, because of my rheumatoid arthritis, I cannot physically carry a child. Because I'd have to get off all my medication. It'd be a whole thing. And, like, there's a, a small chance that, like, we could find a medication that works for me. But having this disease for the last 16 years, kind of been through it all, it's a very complicated, highly monitored situation. Like, there can be no accidental pregnancies in this situation. Um, and, like, abortion is a word that was thrown around a lot for me ever since I was 14. Because ethically, with the medication I'm on, if I did accidentally get pregnant 
that's something that I would have to like really think about and ethically I'd have to do. Um, if I was able to plan it out because of the impact of the medications exactly, on, the, on the fetus. Exactly. And, and if I had to plan, yeah. I, would, I would have to plan it out really intensely. Um, when I was reading this book, I looked at the society and I thought they don't care at all about my rheumatoid arthritis. <laughs> and I look at the society I'm in today and they don't care at all about my rheumatoid arthritis. They don't care about my medications. In fact, pharmacies don't want to give me my methotrexate because it is so harmful. Um, and because I am a birth giving age, so I have to get methotrexate filled in Colorado because certain pharmacists are nervous about being criminalized for abating or aiding and abetting, uh, an abortion, even though there's no chance in all hell that I could be pregnant right now. So like there is like, <laughs> so there, there's this, there's this factor of no trust for me. No one trusts me in, in, in the system. And also, um, they don't care about the physical implications because I won't die if I have to carry a baby, but I will be crippled if I go without my medication. So like, but that's not, that's not as important as this baby's life. And so, um, not that we want to get into like this whole thing about abortion, but it's just that idea that I recognize that I do not matter anymore in this system and that my very nuanced specific issues do not matter on paper. It's whether am I fertile or am I not? Can I have a baby? If I can, then I shouldn't be doing these things. And they're not looking at the big picture. And so that's such a terrifying wake-up call for me. <laughs> and so I can't even, like, I don't have those mixed feelings. I'm just angry. So I'd be curious, yeah, about where you guys are as mothers who – might have complicated body stuff. I don't know. But just as mothers who have gone through the process, uh, the beautiful process of giving birth and having this beautiful baby in your life. And, but also seeing the society forcing other women to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's while you're talking, it's, so my daughter, Abby, um, who's five, uh, I had her when I lived, I was living in Cleveland and Cleveland's like maternal mortality rate is, is like on par with like developing nations, um, mm. especially for, for black women. Um, it's like, it's just a staggering statistic. It's like in every single OB office for my whole pregnancy. Um, and so I think like, that's something I think about is like, you know, having, having a baby being pregnant, it's not a, it's not like a no risk thing. Um, and, you know, I was really fortunate uh, in my first pregnancy to have a pretty, you know, standard routine pregnancy and birth, um, with my son Jackson though, uh, who's two, I had, uh, I had like multiple complications, um, mm. both, uh, I had gestational diabetes, right. I had to take like insulin to control that. Um, and then I developed, uh, like hypertension. So like on the cusp of like preeclampsia, which is a really scary one and was, um, induced, and, and so like as someone who has had high risk pregnancy, as someone who like is still like dealing with the effects of, you know, my blood pressure, you know, two years after he was born, uh, like doctors have consulted, like, if you want to have another baby, like you would need to meet with a cardiologist, like you would need to like have these conversations. And so, um, and I am right. I'm like a well-insured, you know, upper middle class white woman, like I have access to every resource that I could possibly need, which is so fortunate um, and not the reality for so many women and mothers um, mm -hmm. in our country and, you know, in the world. Uh, 
and but I like the the concept of of having a baby is is a is a scary thing, um, you know, and of and of pregnancy, and so the idea of, you know, oh, but of living in this society, like oh, you've you have successfully had a child before. You are now this natural resource. You are now gonna you know this handmade person who will produce these children. It's like actually that's that is a life threatening reality, for me. Um, you know, given actually my track record. Um, not to mention, like, both my kids were almost nine and a half pounds. Like, that is, like, un- an unpleasant oh size. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So I think, like, that's something I think about. It's like, oh, my goodness, if if the the reason you become a handmaid is because you have proven that you can have children, that is terrifying. Yeah. Um, because the process of having children is, is really complicated and... Um, and often, right, for a lot of women, life-threatening. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. That's so powerful, too. That is such... I didn't even think about that point. That Just because you had one, that's why they were often chosen as handmaids, is because they had one. And it's such a terrifying metric. <laughs> uh-huh. When I was... Pre- so the last time I read this was 2017. Um, and I actually... I'm trying to remember what happened in 2017. I, this was when I was in Thailand, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, this is before I went to grad school. Okay. But I wrote down a quote that really stuck out to me then, and then I wrote out another quote during this reading as well. So in 2017, it says, We lived as usual by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. I guess it's a privilege to ignore what's going on around us. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember hearing that a manager of mine never kept up with the news because it never affected him. Mm. Like, oh, that is a massive privilege. Um, and you can see here, like, Offred couldn't, didn't know what she was ignoring because she couldn't, she didn't, well, she was ignorant to the situation around her because she did not have access to that information. Mm-hmm. And so access to news and all of that is important. To be able to turn it off is a privilege. To be able to not even consider it in your day-to-day life is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, 2022 reading, I wrote, truly amazing what people can get used to as long as there are a few compensations. Um, so that one I thought was really interesting. Like, if you give a dog a bone kind of thing, we'll be happy with that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, what are some things that we... What are some things we're getting used to just because we have some some privileges in other areas? Mm. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's maternity leave. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, like, I need more. I want more. And I want my husband to have the same. Uh, because that is going back to a point that you brought up earlier, Nicole, about how the men in the society are also oppressed to assume that women are the only ones who need to take leave and to bond with the child assumes that the father doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. And from like the very beginning of this child's life, this is taking it to the extreme, but essentially they're fatherless because their, their fathers are mm-hmm. sent back to work mm-hmm. um, are, and are expected to be at work. And I have a coworker who did not take a very long maternity or paternity leave because 
it was highly suggested from his manager that maybe he should come back for some of his high profile oh projects. Gosh. Uh, and now my coworker regrets that. Um, he wished he had more time with his, his child. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, we're so grateful for the scraps that we do get. Yeah. And then we're willing to fight for, for the, for more, like not, we're not willing to, but like, we're just, yeah. The fact that he was like, I get a paternity leave. Yeah. Therefore I can cut it off short yeah. because at least I'm getting it. Yeah. And like, that or, is such yeah. a scary. Yeah. Yeah. Even going on to LinkedIn and people's like praising a, a company for giving them like 12 weeks of maternity leave. I'm like, 12 weeks is when I started, started to start feeling like a human again. <laughs> yeah. I think we just underestimate how serious childbirth is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy. You just do it. You guys are both strong. Just, just do, do, it. do it. Yeah. We would have been doing it for centuries. We've only been dying just, for it's very natural. half of those. So <laughs> For that whole, for, well, all for of all them. For all of yeah. them. Ooh, ooh, and all of them. for... <laughs> All those years, not all those pregnancies. Sorry, I misunderstood what you um, said. I didn't, I didn't have a path. I didn't have a path. You picked up where where I was going and you held my hand to the end. So thank you. Um, okay, I think we need yeah. to wrap up. I think so too. <laughs> I have so much to say about this. Gotta get to this birthday party. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know Stephanie already looked up why this was banned. So we'll quickly, Nicole and I, guess why it was banned. Oh, oh no. But you guys look it up at a special place. That's what I was trying to find where you guys look oh, it up. Oh, we don't look sure up. We, the just right we just use Google. We just type it. it in and see. We're oh, not yeah. special. Oh. Um, I have access yeah. to that. My thinking... I did find it also on, like, the American... Library Association? What, library. Mm, that's our... That's our... Yeah, I also... Honey hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Ooh. That's the tagline for the yeah. episode. <laughs> Ooh. The handmaid's, handmaid's tale. Handmaid's tale. That's our honey <laughs> hole. Uh, love really it. love it. Um... Okay, my guess of why it was banned is it talks about sex and also it's feminist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think the sex and um, I wonder if there's like an anti-Christian people read it as anti-Christian. What is it, Stephanie? A drum roll. It was a drum roll. It was very good. Um, so a couple of, so some of the things that have been brought up, uh, profanity, se- sexually explicit, uh, religious viewpoint, that's from ALA. The Google um, lists uh, profanity, overly sexual tones, being anti-Christian, featuring LGBTQ protagonists, oh, yeah. um, and being overall morally corrupt. I know we didn't mention on the episode, but uh, Offred's like best friend Moira from before. Oh yeah, I forgot um, about Moira. Is... Oh, hmm. Well, you should re-examine your biases for why you would forget about her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are some of the reasons. Um, as as I was cheating and looking up why it was banned, um, because I didn't know you don't do that on this podcast, uh-huh. uh, I wanted that like framing as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like something that I believe from my research um, is that like while it's been challenged, you know, for decades, I don't think it was actually officially ban um for the first time in 2020 uh no way which i thought was really like i couldn't find any record i could see challenge 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 but the first time it was successfully ban wasn't until just recently whoa Um, where was it do you know where it was Ooh, do we want to do a guessing game yes i'm gonna say in mississippi uh mm, 
close. It was Texas. <laughs> oh, yeah, that should have been the obvious one. Oh, oh, that, that adds Yeah, up. that adds up. Please that cut that out. Up. I don't want to come across as anti-Texas. Uh, Texas, we yeah, Texas. Texas, yeah. Texas is great. Schools. But you, you guys did go Texas through a weird, really big banning thing. <laughs> last year. They did. They last really went hard on banning. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, and I'm, and I'm curious, even like with that timing, how much of the banning is based on the book versus how much of the banning is based on the Hulu series. Oh. Um, right. Like, which is, which like, like you said before, yeah. it's not her book. It, it's like way more expansive. It's yeah, much more graphic. Um, and so I know one of the things in this podcast generally is like, how many times are books being banned without actually being read? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd be curious if this is actually like a prime example. I'm sure. Of that. I, interesting. I know that I was really hesitant to read this book because I thought it was going to be really intense because of the TV show. And I was like, I'm not ready to go through that. Like, I don't want to be triggered with stuff i don't want to go through that i read the book it was incredibly tame compared to the show like incredibly and to the point where i was like this is anticlimactic (laughs) and now that we're reading it like talking about it i'm like oh no it wasn't but like in the moment i was like oh this is just whatever because but i I was so nervous about it and lesson to the wise Mm -hmm. read the book the book lesson word to the wise yeah (laughs) lesson lesson to the wise as as they say, as they're always saying in Texas, um, <laughs> as I have embroidered on my cross stitch behind me. Lessons to the wisdom. Uh-huh. Um, so that was like, yeah. So that was a big lesson for me. Was I, I just, yeah, I need to just be more. I just need to read the book. Right, and like the notoriety behind a book often is is much worse. Yeah. than the actual text itself. Right, like I think that happens yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's just one thing that was interesting to me about it being banned for being, like, anti-Christian or religious views, um, like, actually made me think about, um, like, the argument to not talk about, like, slavery in schools because it's, like, too hard for white kids to learn about and they'll feel so bad about themselves, right? It's, like, as a Christian, I did not see myself in Gilead, right? Like, the society in the book. I did, like, Mm -hmm. not see Christianity in that. Um, And it makes you think of you know, oh, don't teach slavery because white kids will feel bad. It's like, well, you're making the assumption that they'll, you know, identify more with, you know, slaveholders than they would with abolitionists, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, yeah. And so this is like, oh, it's anti-Christian. Like, ah, that's not Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not what that is. Yeah. Um, and if anything, it's like helpful to see, oh, when taken to the extremes, when you use, you know, religion or whatever viewpoints you have to oppress or to justify you know immoral actions like this is what could happen Mm -hmm. so i just i thought that was an interesting thing yeah yeah definitely i wanted to make sure it made it on the it's gonna i'm gonna get it in there i'm gonna move it around yeah Um, stephanie thank you so much for talking to us i would like you to be on this whenever you want to Honestly, you're so interesting and so lovely to talk to. And I'm sure we could have talked, like, we could have spoken for at least another, like, we could have done this for a whole day. There's so much to talk about with this book. Mm -hmm. So much to talk about just with Margaret Atwood's life. Did you know she went by Peggy? Oh. Yeah. I know. Oh, I did not know that. Thanks for sharing that on the podcast. Yeah, I told her before we recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Little secret time beforehand, just for Stephanie's ears. Also, Um, this didn't make the podcast, but she's related to Mary Webster, supposedly. Ooh. Who is a... The dictionaries? (laughs) The dictionaries. The dictionaries Mary. Mary Webster. (laughs) She was uh, tried as a Salem witch. Yeah. 
That's cool. Oh, that's well, sad. Fun. Well, now I feel bad sad. for laughing. She survived, but um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yay! And she what a roller coaster. Um, and she also is from Canada. Mm-hmm. She's <laughs> so Canadian. there's that. She's Canadian, and she grew up in the woods because her I dad was like a. He worked in the environment like he was doing samples and stuff in, the like that in the woods no like the way that the documentary talked about it it was like the second she was born she was in a knapsack in the woods just living out her life <laughs> and she like so the natural environment like she's just a very interesting gritty person oh this was an interesting fact too we're just throwing all of our facts nicole you had your chance to put the documentary in the podcast for wrapping up <laughs> but Let's... here's an interesting fact the harvard the harvard she went to harvard and she wasn't allowed the, the Harvard. Harvard? She went to Harvard um, during the late 50s, early 60s, and she wasn't allowed to go to many of the libraries. Oh. And so a lot of the scenery in The Handmaid's Tale it are those, like, spaces in Harvard. So, like, where they go and they see all of the people hanging, like, all those bodies that have been killed for being, like, doctors and priests and things like that. Oh. That's the Harvard hanging wall. No, seriously, that all, like, the way that she painted it is, like, the different squares in Harvard between these different libraries and places. Um, isn't that fascinating? Oh, it is fascinating. Don't keep her from a library or she's going to turn your <laughs> yeah. campus into a dystopian society. Completely. Peggy is vicious. Pegs, Pegs is a lot. So that was very fascinating to me. So she's a she's a cool person. But, um... That's all. Yeah. I just But now we're closing. Now we're really closing, but I just had to have those cool facts. <laughs> so thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, we really appreciated you being on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for your vulnerability and telling me about your lives and stuff. I'm really grateful. Seriously. Yeah. I love talking to women about this stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks all around. Um, all right. Okay. Bye, Stephanie. Catch you all next time. Have fun. Bye. Burn This Book is produced by us, Nicola Corin and Eden Wen. Music written by me, Nicola Corin, and produced and performed by my dad, Frank. <laughs>